Welcome to episode two of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Glorantha. Uh, I'm Ludovic, aka Lord Abdul. I'm Jörg, and we have a guest today. And, well, don't you pre- uh, why don't you present yourself? I am Austin Conrad, also known as Akalos, also known as Krell, depending on where you find me. <laughs> <laughs> and where can we find you? Uh, I frequent uh, BRP Central every once in a while, but um, most importantly, you can find me as Akalas on the Johnstown Compendium, where I create the Monster of the Month series every month. Have not missed one yet. Oh, my God. Why? <laughs> and I also create other odd things in my spare time, such as Treasures of Glorantha. Yeah, I think I, I pointed out to you uh, when you started the Monster <laughs> of the Month series, like, you know, with, with a name like that, you're setting up yourself to uh, hating your schedule. <laughs> Uh, I enjoy making them, but yes, uh, I can't make anything else pretty much. (laughs) It makes it it complicated. Especially when you went from uh, making a Monster of the Month that's like eight pages to a Monster of the Month that's regularly 30 pages, yes. Uh, 15, 20 has been the most recent ones. 15, 20, yeah, okay. It feels heavy in my iPad. Um. (laughs) All those extra bits. Luckily, you don't have to follow the Goranthan months. Oh, which was seven uh, days. What, <laughs> seven days for a month? Yeah, well, if you take the red moon, yes. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. tempting. Oh, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that don't count. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, if you take the blue moon, it's uh, one yeah. to uh, it's uh, two to eight, uh, seven days or so. So not much yeah. better. That was one of the things that came up actually for me <laughs> when I, I'm working on an Azrolia project, and. Um, one of the things that came up is I'm I go and I look at terrestrial cultures for inspiration and frequently s- festivals and terrestrial cultures are tied to the lunar calendar of mm-hmm. you know one once per month 12 major festivals throughout the year and that doesn't map well to glorantha because your main chunks of time are each season which is 8 weeks so you get cut right. down on the number of major festivals if mm-hmm. you follow that same logic or you just have everybody partying all the time, literally every week and being completely wasted. That's the actual alternative, yes. <laughs> if you look at the good. calendar in the Game Master screen pack, that's actually what occurs. Yeah. <laughs> you got, you've got a good festival pretty much every week. Yeah. Well, I mean, a good. There's, there's some weeks where you have like some, you know, Humact or whatever festival that doesn't sound very but you fun. You still got to kill a cow and eat it. That's the important part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, a cow per clown, you don't get that much of all of that. <laughs> Depends on your milieu. Depends on your milieu. <laughs> let's stop rambling. Uh, let's talk about some <laughs> news. Uh, speaking of the calendar, did anything uh, interesting or cool happened in the past month since, uh, well, since our last episode? Listeners who don't know, actually, check out the uh, our newsletter called the Journal of Runic Studies that we published on our, our website. You can subscribe by email, uh, you can subscribe by RSS, or you can just go and check the website every week like a savage. But um, so that's how you can get all your uh, Glorantan news. Well, all, most of them. Uh, I can't actually get all of them. Did anything in particular out for you let's start with our guest well my favorite rumor 
that I heard uh, is that apparently, according to the Twitterverse, which I don't live on, which is why I'm calling it a rumor, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Tweet, the well-known designer of Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 and more relevant for this show, 13th Age Glorantha, has submitted his manuscript for a Your Glorantha Will Vary project, mm-hmm. officially published by Chaosium. Mm-hmm. I believe it at one stage had the title Dragon's Eye. I don't know yeah. if that's currently the case, but the focus was on presenting multiple locations in the Dragon Pass region, which are presented in such a way that the game master can choose how their Glorantha will vary and to help open up the setting to localized variety. Yeah. And I think that's a really cool concept because Glorantha is really hard to game master sometimes when you focus (laughs) on, like, what is in the guide. So (laughs) you want to make it simpler by giving more options? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I am a big fan of saying screw the canon, rule of cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... You, and you then was... I go and I focus on the canon a whole lot when I design my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a it's kind of this knife's edge you have to walk along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't think it's a rumor because uh, Jonathan tweet, uh, tweeted that himself. So I okay. assume it's... Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I don't exist on Twitter really so <laughs> i wasn't 100 percent sure what the details are yeah no yeah he tweeted yeah. it um i believe one of the locations in that book at least when back when chaosium announced it last year one of the locations is the one with the um the wasp rider thingy um can't remember no, what's the that yeah. Though, yeah yeah so there's going to be some wasp riding little people which sounds the fun. wasp riders actually have a tiny amount of stats in the glory of the bestiary um what? there's a note somewhere that they have the same that they're humans with the same characteristic modifiers as the impala riders oh it's like a footnote to the wasp entry or something i, I stumbled across it by accident at one point and i was like what <laughs> yeah the pygmies yeah well it was just yeah. i didn't expect that detail in the spot it was so i don't remember yeah. exactly <laughs> cool um Yurik, what do you have well uh the usual uh calcium is leaky as hell when it comes to uh art previews Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's fun. <laughs> so uh, right now we get uh, a tableau of faces of satellites, of hairstyles. Please, let's uh, talk about pictures and visual medium in an uh, audio podcast. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Go on. of course. <laughs> so uh, these people we, uh, we get here are people you might meet in the street, maybe a, a little more tan than ourselves, but... yeah. Uh, mostly the, uh, these hairstyles are quite trendy. Mm. Uh, at least if at least if you go to places like Wacken. I don't remember where that picture is, but I, I seem to remember that they had a, a good variety of styles, and they even had like some like a blue guy and a green lady in the mix. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I don't remember if the did the description actually mention if it was like painted blue and green or if it was naturally blue and green? Because I think in some people's Glorenta, there's like wild eye colors and skin color. I believe there was a comment clarifying that they were presenting them as painted in that okay. picture. Yeah, I recall that the Red Cow books do have blue and gray colored skin in, mm-hmm. in Sartar. I don't recall the extent to which that's present in the RuneQuest version of Glorantha. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. 
<laughs> I, I don't like tend it. to make that much of a difference between uh, RuQuest Canon and uh, HeroQuest or QuestBots Canon. Yeah. So, yeah, in my, in my grounds, that people uh, have some weird skin colorations too. Mm. Also, also like bright orange, which is canonical uh, for RuQuest. Uh, like bright orange skin or eyes? Yeah, bright orange skin. Oh, yeah. In uh, Dragon Pass or out west? Because I know out west it gets really weird. I shouldn't well, say weird. Uh, out say east, actually, uh, uh, if I recall correctly, it was a poor Joni, uh, a hero of uh, Stormball. Hmm. Mm. It was brightly orange. And when you say canonical, it's like uh, like an NPC from Rune Masters or some shit like that? Uh, he, he was a cult hero. Uh, published even, even in uh, Cards of Prex. Oh, okay. Hmm. Cool. Or any more, uh, maybe. Uh, I, I need to look that up. But <laughs> mm. So, yeah, uh, but yes, uh, weird uh, skin coloration is canonical. Mm. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I know it gets really strange out west. I know the some of the casts, I think, have traditional skin colorations that are not Earth's skin coloration spectrum. Mm, yeah, yeah. The, the ancient ones uh, or the undying ones were quite uh, rainbowy. Mm. <laughs> cool. What have you got for us, Ludo? Uh, me? Uh, well, let's start with uh, something we haven't talked about very much, uh, but a lot of people are waiting. That's the VTT integration of uh, RuneQuest. So Chaosium has said that there would be some VTT integration when the, the RuneQuest starter set gets released, uh, but they didn't quite say, you know, which VTT, like Roll20 or the Foundry or whatever. Uh, but it sounds like there's um, there's like some person on, actually on Twitter, who's posting a bunch of updates about a RuneQuest integration with Fantasy Grounds, which looks like it's official. It's got like all the screenshots have a bunch of starter set content in them. And it looks like it's making good progress. I mean, um, that developer is posting a bunch of screenshots with, you know, Vasana's character sheets. That's wonderful. I know one of the things I struggled with was I wasn't particularly eager to learn how to use a virtual tabletop. Uh, <laughs> when COVID hit and games had to change, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of this. And if it can make something nice and easy for a technophobe like myself, that would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Make it so much easier to run games and figure that out. I do love how the roll 20 sheet does all the math for you. And when yeah. you, when you, <laughs> when your characteristics change, it just redoes everything. That is so nice. <laughs> Yeah, especially yeah. since one of the things I dislike the most about RuneQuest is the uh, skill category modifiers. I just hate coming up with them. <laughs> so uh, it's nice when it's taken care of for you. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, anything you have to look up on the table. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I repeatedly get flack from one of my players in a joking sense because I don't have the tables memorized. Despite all the writing I do, and despite how frequently I reference these tables, I still don't have them memorized. Have you seen how many tables there are between the strike rank tables and that's the, what yeah, I tell the him. Skill category tables and yeah. the, what those tables? That's yeah. what I left with uh, Request Three. It had algorithms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, Austin, do you have um, something else for us? I do. Around the time this podcast released, we should have a new Monster of the Month available on the Johnstown Compendium. Mm. July's Monster of the Month is Petty Spirits. We're going back to the short format until I get bored. Because Wait, these uh, fifth- Are you just re- reissuing the Petty Spirits from the first season? No, this is a new one. It has uh, three spirits like the last one. Cool. Oh, man, if I could get away with that, you have no idea. I totally would. <laughs> uh, we have three spirits this time around. We have the bookworm, child of Daga, and we have child's fortune, the uh, imaginary friend that ostensibly protects children, but usually gets them in trouble instead. Oh, right. Yeah, you had that one for a while in the in the, in the uh, box. Yes. Yeah, I've yeah. I've been working to write these issues in advance so that I have more time to do other stuff and that works to some extent. The challenge has been that if I'm is has been that if I'm writing those long issues like you mentioned earlier, that the process of editing and artwork and layout mm-hmm. and proofreading to make a product that I'm happy with just takes an awful lot of time. <laughs> it pretty much eats at least a week every month, sometimes two weeks. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And that just doesn't leave me with a lot of time to work on other stuff I also want to work on. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, July's Monster of the Month should be out around the time this podcast comes out. Both mm-hmm. of these are releasing end of the month. Yeah. It will have three spirits in it, as I said. Uh, We've got a lovely little illustration of a bookworm, which is a spirit created by God-learner sorcery. Uh, It's a living spell Why do you say that in the condescending way? (laughs) (laughs) Say Say it like... Created by God Learner Sorcery. Uh, give me a minute. Give me a minute. <laughs> uh, through the wonderful beneficence of the abiding book, this has descended uh, out of the heavens, coalesced pure logic, which eats dragon knowledge and therefore shall finally uh, da- lead to the downfall of the youth once and for all. Nice. Huzzah. See? Say, was it that hard? Sounds great. <laughs> Every once in a while, I can improvise. Okay, nice. <laughs> you gotta get you just got. You gotta give me like a minute to think of it. <laughs> well, that good. sounds good. Uh, and then, Child of Daga is um, a spirit, which is the explanation for droughts. Yeah. One of the things I with the petty spirits things or petty spirits publications one of the things i really wanted to explore is how does glorantha work mm-hmm. my understanding and the way i approach glorantha is that our common sense of what happens in earth happens bronze tarnishes crops fail drought happens mm-hmm. But the reasons, the explanations are different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, with Petty Spirits, I'm exploring how these things happen spirit with spirits as the active agent instead of, you know, whatever the heck it is that makes bronze tarnish. You're, you're, you're the chemist. Help me Oxidation out here. <laughs> or something. I know, I know rust oxidizes. I don't know what the bronze, what the, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's the same. The main difference is that uh, the bronze tarnish is waterproof. Neat. <laughs> um, and then the bookworm cool. is just, I like the pun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
sometimes there's no deep explanation. Sometimes I, I, I like a pun and I need to figure out what it is. Yeah. I'm looking forward for the spirit that explains why you always lose uh, one sock. Ooh, actually, that's a really great idea. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> no, it's not, no, it's be, not a it, good idea. <laughs> no, 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 too bad. Uh, little gremlin, little gremlin creatures that steal laundry. Absolutely. Uh, oh, yes. And then uh, people over in Alda have to go find it. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, or uh, similar gremlins which leave uh, itchy stuff inside your underwear. Also, yes. <laughs> the jockstrap fairy. <laughs> So now that we're talking about underwear, before it goes any uh, <laughs> off the rails, uh, Jörg, do you have any other uh, news item to talk about? Yes, um, it's stuff that Jeff dropped on Facebook, which I mm. don't follow, but thankfully a couple of uh, generous people do follow, including mm -hmm. Ludo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that's uh, the detail on uh, three of the Colima plants. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. And a guild and bolt home. So mm -hmm. we get a little bit more of nuts and bolts of how the Colima plants work. Yeah. With uh, one, uh, with two extraordinary ones, with the Vermandi and the Anardori, mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, sticking out the spectrum, how far it goes into poverty <laughs> and crime and into uh, <laughs> well, urbanized settings. And in between, we get the Yording clan which is sort of a normal clan, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we get a little glimpse into the urban life of Bootop with the bronze workers guild. Yeah. Which is almost like a tribe to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting also because it's also a glimpse into a minor cult because it's also like a, a organized around the, the Gus Brown cult for the, uh, yeah. the forges and all that. So And the uh, miners cult. The what? A minor's card, in addition to a minor card. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that really surprised me. I didn't expect the Gustburn cult to also be the miner's uh, organizing force, so to speak. Well, it's, it's the son of Lodriel, and he's the guy who uh, did a lot of brass uh, deposition down, uh, down below. So uh, basically, why should Kalara and Aurelian have all the fun? Well, Collider and Aurelian, they're really localized, aren't they? Yes. But basically, Loder is a lot of the uh, down below, the male one. Okay. Uh, or in this case, we I guess we should call him Vescarthen. That's yes, the, he, the big volcano. Oh, right. Yes. Boom. Yeah, well, the, 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 father, <laughs> the father of the other mountains, like Creven and so on. So hmm. we have lots of sons of Lodriel here. And one of my favorite spells in the Red Book of Magic is the one that makes a volcano go boom. <laughs> <laughs> you get, I think, a 1% chance per room point you put in. <laughs> oh, wow. You get everyone together and just go bam. And you get like a 50% shot of the whole thing going boom. Mm. Yeah. So nice. uh, what of the uh, mountain wasn't a volcano before? Mm -hmm. I, I think it, you know, I can look that up real quick. I have it right here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it uh, that it only targets um, that it targets specifically volcanoes, not non-volcanoes. Well, the great thing with a lot of mountains is that you don't know it, but it's got volcanic activity underneath it. It's just like it hasn't went, it, it hasn't gone boom in like you know two thousand years, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, 
So. Well, a mineralogist uh, would probably tell you this is chalk. This won't go boom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the, the GM is going to say, oh, come on, you know, the, the players gathered 200 people. I'm, yeah. I'm going to let them have that. <laughs> uh, but, and uh, of course, you never know what's below the sediment. Yes. Yeah. It requires an active volcano. Oh, so, active? Oh, yeah. So no, uh, so no chance of even going boom. Well, that just means that you guys have to wake it up first. You're the god learners, right? Use your sorcery. <laughs> I mean, there, there's probably dragons underneath half of the mountains in there. So, you know, it's Dragon Pass. It's in the name. So uh, you can you can make things go boom. Um, cool. So before we move on to the, the main topic, I wanted to uh, make fun of Austin a bit. Uh, because... <laughs> Oh, well, Lord. First, well, first congratulations because uh, you had put the um, index of rune spells from the Red Book of Magic on the Johnson Compendium. And then uh, did, did Chaosium contact you or did you contact them and then, then made it official into a... Chaosium contacted me and they made yeah. it official. Okay. Not a, not, it wasn't unofficial in the first place, I suppose, in a certain sense. No, yeah. But, but... they decided that it was a good addition to the product as a whole. Yeah. Uh, but so yeah, I, I'm I'm saying making fun because so you know the Red Book of Magic was created because uh, Chaosium was writing the Cults book. Yes, it's basically the, the note stock from the Cults book. Yeah, so it, the Red Book of Magic is basically the index of uh, spells for the Cults book, and you make an index of spells for the index of spells. <laughs> <laughs> It just goes to show you can't uh, you can't fail to be sufficiently organized. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of making an index of the index of the index now if I can figure out what it would look like. But uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that the next step of this recursive loop is that you simply make an index uh, indicating which page of my larger index has the uh, spells, which yes. I already actually have. That index is called the table of contents. Oh, yes. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. So yeah, but, then uh, your final stage is a one page PDF that says where the table of contents is in my index <laughs> of the index of the Red Book of Magic. Of the Cult Book. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's so the final stage is a one page PDF referring to my table of contents. Uh, well, um, uh, the, th the thing gets more useful as soon as we get the Cult Book and we can add the references to the Cult Book uh, occurrence of the spells. <laughs> Ooh. I will say that if the cults book does not have a quick reference saying which cults have which spells, that uh, yes, I think that would be a useful addition. Indexes <laughs> <laughs> all the way down. Exactly. Yeah. Just being able to skim briefly and go, okay, you know, one page, Azrelia, Arnalda, Tykorakek, whatever, all of them saying just what their spells are. So you can just, as a player, glance at it and go, I want to be able to do this cool stuff. I want to be able to do that cool stuff. And there we were complaining that there are too many tables in RuneQuest. Yes, but these are useful tables. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing whether you get plus 10 or plus 15 on your manipulation mod is not super useful. <laughs> well, it's more practical. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's okay. a better way. More practical. <laughs> Let's move on to our main topic.
So anyway, we wanted to uh, talk about uh, traveling in Sartor because uh, that's probably uh, a fairly common activity for all of your player characters. Uh, there are many published adventures all around Sartor, even like just the um, the official adventures from Chaosium are a bit all over the map, so you can get to see a lot of cool locales. If you add the Johnston Compendium adventures, then that's yet another uh, whole bunch of uh, places to visit. And Nick then Brooks, there, yeah. Oh, Nick Brooks Index of oh, the right, Johnstown yeah. Compendium mm -hmm. has a really useful map at the back that indicates where all the adventures take place. Yes. If yeah. you are interested in using those adventures, I recommend picking that index up. It gives you a way to see where all the stuff is and then plot it as your game master. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We'll put the link in the show notes. And if we look at the near future, um, the starter set will feature a booklet on Jonestown. So all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of player character that will probably uh, start going towards Jonestown. And then further down the line, there's the Sartar Homeland box set, whatever it's going to be called. Yeah, uh, where there's going to be the entirety of the Sartar area described in detail, and uh, and then everybody's going to want to go and see everywhere. Yeah. So there's going to be lots of travel. Let's start by talking a bit about why the player characters might be traveling. Like, my, why might they go from point A to point B in, um, at least within Saltar, but I guess we'll talk about generally applicable stuff. So what do you have, guys? If you're a rural person, you uh, you, uh, you might uh, just want to visit the city. Mm -hmm. If you're an urban person, there will be always be another city which has something you need. Yes, like what? Like training, temples, in my Glorantha city, uh, the thing I think about when considering cities is what does the more centralized economy provide to the surrounding area? The big thing for me is metalwork. I mm -hmm. uh, don't see metalwork happening on the like the clan level, like in your small village. I see this the metalwork yeah. happening at places like Clearwine Fort and Bigger, the towns and the cities. Yeah, yeah, and so if you need a new plow, you have to go into the city and negotiate how to get yeah. that new. Well, actually, yes. plows are often that. Uh, partially, I'm fine with that. On the other hand, you always have that mystic smith uh, somewhere uh, where his ore is, so uh, he will have the extraordinary material at hand and will work from obscurity, hmm. which is also a place you need to visit or find hmm. even. I think that works very well for adventure stories. I don't think that's how the, or at least in, in my Glorantha, that's not how the small scale clan stuff works, but that's definitely what happens with adventurers. Depends on your scale, I think. I would probably let each clan have at least, you know, one or two uh, Red Smith, but have it so that they don't have their own, uh, uh, how do you call that, like supply chain, so that they just have a thing locally to provide basic stuff uh, in terms of yeah. building basic tools and repairing basic tools. Uh, but then they need to travel frequently to, like you said, the, the nearby city to get their, you know, get their ingots, get their uh, molds, um, do any um, more, more advanced uh, metal work. 
but I would have at least uh, a few basic uh, things at the clan level. But uh, but there you can all already see that there would be some travel between clan centers and tribal centers and confederation centers to uh, you know kind of go up the chain in, in expertise and um, uh, supplies and material and and stuff like that. And even then between, for example, between the the metal workers of the main confederation city and their um, uh, like the the mines that they might own or that they might have um, uh, contracts with. So apparently, like you were talking, Jurg, about the um, uh, the Gut Brown uh, cult in Baltimore. Apparently, they actually own a couple mines so i assume like they have a, a good supply pipeline going between the the mine and and bolt home so that's you know a bunch of stuff that you can escort or that you can go and help like you know there's a yeah. help there's this cart of ingots stuck in the pass over there or or fell down uh yeah a cliff or whatever and then you have all the fuel you need yes yes stick pickers are real important for that um <laughs> Well, yeah, you got you got to go and get the random yeah. stuff and turn it into charcoal. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. One of the other things I think that's worth thinking about when devising your Gorantha is how common is metal? Mm -hmm. How yeah. uh, is there is metal common enough that redsmiths get to work metal every day, or do they have to? Are they doing other tasks, you know, on the daily basis? And then metalworking is something that's done on the holy days, on the sacred days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would because um, it, it depends on how close to the classical era or to the late bronze era you're putting your Kalanta, <laughs> in my opinion, which I, I know is a contentious spot. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to say I'm trying to contextualize it as individuals. <laughs> instead. Yeah, I mean, have you seen how often the the swords break in uh, Red Quest? You know, you get, you have a lot of a lot of weapons <laughs> yeah. to manufacture here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then the uh, swords break in fights where people die, and they just bury the sword with them. Problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, let's keep uh, focused on uh, travel. Another thing, like you were asking, like where your Glorenta might be on that topic. Another topic I'm not sure about is messages, like communication, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. because that's also a big reason to travel. It's to uh, communicate a message. I don't. I think that there is much communication magic in Glorita. I didn't miss anything, right? There's not really a lot of long distance communication. Yeah. The spell wind words yeah. uh, is the first thing that comes to mind, but that's restricted still to rune magic range. We don't have yeah. a way to extend range like we have a way to extend time. Yeah. There is the magic item, the glass butterfly in plunder. But that's very clearly identified as a very rare and uh, special object. It's not something that, you know, one clan in five even has. It's I think there's 20 in Chlorantha itself. I don't remember yeah. the exact number. Yeah, so you still you still need to send somebody on a yes. fast mount yeah. or whatever and, uh, uh, yeah. and deliver the message, right? Or you send some uh, disembodied. Uh, you can send spirits. True. Mm, yes. yes. That. Yeah. That's also a good point. Um, Does that go faster, I, or is it less reliable? <laughs> yes to both. Yes. Depends on what you're summoning. I would not trust a animal spirit with a message, um, but I might trust an Asari's cult spirit. 
Uh, one of yeah. the we think of Asarius as merchants, but I think one of the important elements is that he's also the herald. He's yeah. the neutral uh, communication person. He's the messenger. Yes. And so yes. I imagine that the Asarius cult handles a lot of the f- formal diplomatic travel and yeah. communication yeah. between political leaders. Well, formal yeah. diplomatic communication also involves uh, the giving of gifts. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why you send a trader. Isaris, I think, is one of the um, underrated cults. Like Isaris has a few different hats, and <laughs> we often always remember one and not the others. Um, so I think he's the psychopomp. Also, he's supposed to. Yeah, uh, he is. He's supposed yeah. to guide the spirits to the underworld. Which so, I don't feel like that's very well represented in the magic in the core rulebook. Not um, at all. But I, yeah. I think it's interesting. Even even his position as a as the basic basically the guy that finds a way and um and gets from point a to point b that's also not very well represented in the in the rune magic like i feel like i i really want to add one or two nice rune spells to isaris but yeah uh, but yeah i like i like isaris i imagine even maybe like you know some of the main roads in sartar might have a few milestones with the effigy or uh, the sign of Isaris the same way. Um, I think it was like Roman roads. Uh, Hermes. Like, yeah, they had regular Hermes or mm-hmm. Mercury. Um, yeah. Um, the Herms. Uh, sta- ritual statues of Hermes with a great big old penis. Um, <laughs> I am not making that up. <laughs> uh, Alcibiades in Greece very famously uh, caused a scandal because he got drunk and broke the penises off. <laughs> it it right. was a political scandal. It's hilarious. Oh, well. um, uh, but yeah, but, that's yeah. that is actually a, an element in the Azrolia project I'm working on is cool. the uh, statue of Isaris that you make a libation to before going on your journey. Oh, nice. Little details. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, uh, another thing uh, about just before you leave for your travel, it would be yeah, often good to make. Um, uh, sacrifices to Isaris, uh, or also even just generally look for omens, divination, or whatever. Like if you're on an important, important travel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, I want to go over a few in- interesting other reasons to travel, which could be like fun, maybe hooks for um, adventures. Uh, thing. Well, I mean, you know, there's the basic things like uh, escorting a trade caravan and 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 stuff like that, or escorting um, your chieftain or a priest who needs to visit somewhere. Um, going to a holy site because you gotta regenerate those rune points. I really <laughs> like the idea of pilgrimage as a this world hero quest. That's not something mm-hmm. I've seen taken advantage of on an on an consistent scale yet you know the journey to the pegasus plateau to take part in the three winds festival and earn yourself a hippogriff i think could be made as interesting as the actual festival itself Mm -hmm. and then also you know you take the long uh pilgrimages that are parts of religious traditions in the ancient world such as traveling to delphi to see the oracle in greece or even in the modern day uh where muslims travel to mecca at one yes. point in their lives, mm-hmm. the Hajj. Yeah. It, it's the the pilgrimage is a really important religious motif, yeah. and it's not some and it's something that we even do secularly too. You know, people who are obsessed with a certain area want to go there, and it's in a sense pay homage to it. 
Are you going to go to yeah, Gen Con next year? Whether it's Gen Con or a sports uh, stadium yeah. yes. or an ancient site that you're a complete total nerd about. Or even just like some big um, uh, concert from some popular pop star. Or, or Greg Stafford's house. <laughs> Don't do that, guys. That yeah. that was a joke. Do not do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it's it's nice that um, the, the gameplay... The game mechanics of rune points actually force you, or at least encourage you, to go on pilgrimage because, well, at very minimum, you're gonna say, "I'm gonna go over there because there's a great temple, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna recover more rune points there during yeah. this holiday." Uh, and then, if you if you want, you can add more narration and then be even there and all that. But at the very minimum, you have the mechanics encouraging you to do that, which is which is and nice. Uh, what you should do is to do have, uh, preparatory steps like uh, cleaning up or doing some facing and so on on predetermined sites on the way. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Purification yeah. is another element that I don't see used a lot in Glorantha where it shows up all the time in Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia. You, I would probably play that as, you know, there's the mechanics of uh, uh, ritual preparation. Yep. Absolutely. So if, if your journey takes, you know, five days and you say during, I'm going to take, you know, 10 days and just like crawl half the way and, uh, and whatever, um, I would probably allow to, um, like, you know, parts of that to be, to go towards getting that, you know, plus 40% bonus in worship or, or whatever. Absolutely. So, so yeah, yeah, again, yeah, the, that's the mechanics game. kind of um, lead yeah. you there. Um, interestingly enough, because in in RuneQuest you're encouraged also well many adventures have you be in touch with important NPCs like you know high priests and high priestesses and all that. There's a few uh, opportunities there to have something like there is this high holiday festival coming up and your priest wants some kind of important item or uh, they want uh, the um, effigy of uh, of the devil for the uh, uh, for the summons of evil to be built with wood from this evil forest or whatever <laughs> like there yeah. um, uh, I was reading about some stuff like I think it's in the ancient Greece where you would have actually traders, sent you know halfway across europe to go and fetch uh some special amber or some special wood in preparation for an important festival so there's precedent for that bring me some soy from the birthplace there and for less pro-social characters you could be uh taking a cue from the medieval period and trading around entire skeletons worth of saints relics <laughs> ah yes this bone is uh, clearly an artifact from the days of vinca <laughs> yeah obviously this is a relic of all of our ancestors it's very important and you should buy it for lots of silver yeah <laughs> i am yeah. a big fan of uh campaigns that leave options for players to either be wonderful pro communal helpful people and also to be shyster hucksters <laughs> yeah <laughs> roll for fast talk Yes. Uh, <laughs> what else did I have? Oh, yes. Um, apparently, um, there was such a thing as tourism in the ancient world. Uh, people were actually uh, traveling just to see some cool shit. So you might. Pausanias to- is really famous for that. Um, I haven't read Pausanias, but he's from the 
uh, middle to late Roman period, I believe, second or third century CE. Yeah. And he has a famous record of Greece that is it's some of the earliest travel writing out there, uh, which is basically, (laughs) Hey, I went on a tour to Greece. Here's what I saw. And it's really useful for historians. They've referenced it all the time. Oh yeah. Some people argue that uh, Herodotus was the first uh, travel writer. I'm, I'm not convinced personally. Uh, I like Herodotus, but I, I don't think he traveled as much as he says he did. He says (laughs) he heard a lot of things from the cousin of his best friend's roommate. I mean, yeah, come to, to be fair, when when he hears something completely outlandish, generally he ha- he adds a little mention that says, "Note that I didn't see it myself. It's only like you know the Babylonians who told me that. Uh, I'm not sure if it's true." So he he's sometimes a bit gullible, but most of the time he's like, "I'm just I'm just telling it the way I heard it." He takes yeah. the kitchen sink approach, and that's some a lot of the fun. It, it, he's really interesting because yes. he just gives you everything he's heard. Yes. He, it doesn't give the appearance of selecting portions. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, um, yeah, uh, tourism and, and study groups, like, you know, Lankermai, um, groups of Lankermai sages traveling to study something, and they might need protection, or they might yeah. need a guide, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, there's also traveling to help other people travel. So traveling because you need to update some cartography, you need to update some itinerarium, you need to uh, on larger road or make a new road or repair a you know yeah. um, uh, a Ford or find find a better one and stuff like that. Uh, I think there could be there's room for a couple of adventures where it's like you know yeah this pass is blocked because there was an avalanche and you go check it out and it's like oh man the avalanche was actually caused by something else uh because this um this volcano blew up um, <laughs> i think this- another another thing you could tie in with that is perhaps the adventurers have to trailblaze a new magic road Ooh. that a magic road that lets yeah. them take it's not a pass but it takes them over the mountains instead mm. and they, yeah. you, you have to negotiate with the local ice nymphs and things like that yeah yeah, yeah. so that gives you something that gives you more traditional adventure content mm-hmm. but yeah. still have to interact with them in name problems yeah and then there's something quite innocent but yet conflict-ridden uh, it's family reunions oh yeah weddings burials, yes. especially <laughs> with murder well um often murder results from such family reunions exactly (laughs) cool okay so now let's move on to the next section you've got a reason to travel how do you travel which way do you go Uh, what mode of transport do you use Uh, how much gear do you take on etc etc i'd like to give a shout out real quick to the one great tragedy of Glorantha that uh, a lot of the areas we play in, you can't travel by the most common method in the ancient world boat. Yeah. Yes. You got river boats going up and down the Creek stream river to some extent, but beyond that, it, there's not the Mediterranean climate which fostered trade and no, travel and negotiation throughout the ancient world. Yeah. And well, I mean, you probably get a bit of that if you play in Australia, but you get um, a little of that with the Mirror Sea, mm-hmm. but it's not 
the same yeah. and it's not in the area the core area where lots of people play sartar yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, Sartar only has a couple of rivers. Do, do you people have boats and uh, boat traffic in your Glorantas there? Well, all the way up to uh, Duck Point, but then the Creekstream River really has been uh, ruined twice. First time by Delecti, mm-hmm. who uh, created that obstacle of the upland marsh. Yeah. So uh, previously you could go all the way up to Dwarf Run by boat. Mm-hmm. Now you have to somehow uh, navigate around uh, the upland marsh, or if you're really powerful through it. Mm-hmm. And the second time it got ruined was, of course, when Billinter slew the lead serpent, and uh, the river was redirected, or had to be redirected to a notch it. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Dragon Pass really was hit badly uh, in terms of river travel. Yeah. So it's all uh, like carts and... Um... Horses and bisons and foot. That's how I see a lot of it. I see a lot yeah. of it being pack animal caravans, yeah. um, occasionally with the with the assistance of a barge. But once you really get into Sartar proper, yeah. it becomes you can't. I I see it as pretty difficult to travel within Sartar and Dragon Pass using the rivers as highways. Yeah. And instead, you're using the King's Roads with yes. pack animals until maybe you get to the Os- Oslier and you start going north towards the Lunar Empire. Because okay. that's your and, destination. Yeah. Sartar, yeah. if you're doing long distance travel, like for trade, yeah. I see Sartar is your crossroads. It's yes. not your destination a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah you're going to Prax or uh, Dagorian Karth or yeah. Lunar Empire and all that. Yeah, um, I see a lot of it as between the Holy Country and the Lunar Empire. That's where a lot of the trade takes place. And everyone else along the way benefits. And I was thinking, um, like, you might see a barge or two as a ferry to cross a, a river. But if you follow the King's Road, I imagine it's it's the, the, the few places where you have good bridges. Yeah, yeah. I definitely imagine that the King's Road probably has yeah. some pretty, pretty solid bridges. Um, considering it's presented as significantly above the tech level that we would expect throughout rural Galantha. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would imagine that elsewhere bridges are fairly, uh, uncommon and then you have to, uh, pay a ferry or a ford, uh, the river, uh, in terms of pack animals, uh, one thing you've got a couple of tribes in Sartar that are, uh, horse tribes, the other tribes, what would you see them use as pack animals or as mounts? I imagine the combat mount probably is still the horse. Uh, I am a yeah. big fan of the donkey caravan as your pack animal, in part because <laughs> yeah. I'm a history geek and I like trying to keep things vaguely similar to ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, also has the big fan that, or big advantage that the Praxian nomads, if you're going out that way, will not murder the heck out of you for riding a horse or steal <laughs> your cat pack animals because they want some dinner. Because sure. no one cares about donkeys. But um, it's just that uh, when you look at the pregens, I mean, Vasana has a bison, Harmast has zebras. So I'm like, what what do the Sartorites use? I don't know. I figure that the pregens are being exceptions here and not the norm Mm -hmm. i do imagine that the unusual animals exist within uh adventurous context and within the other clans Mm -hmm. i don't see them as being predominant Mm -hmm. i Um, i would say the horse is still the typical travel animal for the um person who can afford it 
and then most people are by foot. Yeah, Yuri. Basically, is what can the people breed, and uh, they have uh, they have the cults and the magic for breeding horses. Isseries, mm -hmm. uh, of course, is uh, the breeder of mules, so we have to have donkeys. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure that the donkeys are used for overland uh, for uh, long distance overland travel. I think I see them more on the hand of stick pickers, or so oh, uh, you, wouldn't, carry... you wouldn't use mules for like your big long. I would no, I would. I would use the mules for long distance traffic. Yeah. But donkeys, I would resist to domestic domestic. Oh, traffic. I see. Okay. Yeah. But that's because I'm thinking of uh, of the European donkey rather than the African donkey, mm -hmm. which is well, uh, being of dif uh, different character. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking uh, Middle Eastern caravans <laughs> in the Sumer period. Most is the main point of reference in my yeah. head. Um, also, one of my favorite tidbits I've picked up from that recently, the horse was called the donkey of the mountains by the, by the people <laughs> of that period. Because it was like, anything that's four foot is a donkey. Yes. <laughs> if it's a mule, it's a this type of donkey. <laughs> if it's the horse, it's the donkey of the mountains. Because it was the, and they knew it from the Indo-Europeans more so than from their own usage. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think um, like it took them a while to realize how versatile and useful the yeah. horse was. If I remember correctly, um, yeah, yeah. Um, when I, I think that also comes down to different climates, yeah. And that that's one of the challenges you see with trying to think about, hey, what kinds of different animals are used by Gloranthin clans? Mm -hmm. Is the Praxian animals are all very specified as they eat these types of shrubs, and that's why different tribes and clans, if they choose to, can co uh, exist in the same grazing space because yes, their animals yeah. are each grazing in different things. Now the Praxians don't often choose to because Waha is very warlike, but they have that yeah, option. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Prax is, is its own beast. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, that was bad. There are basically two Praxian beasts, which you find in Sarta, which is Sable, Antelope and Bison. Nobody oh, wants to. Uh, saber nobody, antelope, yeah. really? Yeah, saber antelope. Yes, there's uh, famously that uh, mounted warrior in Hero Quest Lorantha, mm -hmm. the satellite mounted warrior, which is yeah. riding a saber antelope okay. rather than a horse. Okay. Yeah. So um, these are quite compatible with the conditions in Sarta, and the thing is, I don't know whether anybody breeds them. Also yep. worth keeping in mind are the more unusual beasts of burden that are on tap. For example, dinosaurs and mastodons, uh, yes. both of which live in the hills and kind of meander through the area. Obviously, training one is probably a bit of a chore. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a big fan of also keeping those options in mind. In particular, my favorite is the uh, Triceratops as a battle platform uh, as popularized in Games Workshop's Warhammer fantasy game with a bunch of skinks, which are actually dragon newts, climbing all over the thing with a catapult on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> which would probably be more like a priest with magic and stuff like that, but I like that idea. That idea is cool. I mean, the the dinosaur riding Marangor war priestess is always like one of the yeah. most fun character concepts, so... Yeah. So if you're a Asari's merchant and you want to be really cool, get friends 
in Marangor and convince them to loan you a dinosaur. Yeah. yeah. No one will ever bother you ever again. <laughs> oh, everybody will. And don't go near truer lands. <laughs> you, you are also riding a week's worth of dinners. So yes. that, do keep that in mind. Yes. That brings up another great uh, odd creature alternative in the bugs. Yeah. Yes. You've got lots of pack bugs. Mm-hmm. I've had characters consider purchasing them when trolls come into town. Oh yeah, because they're just they're just different and interesting. Do they get oh. weird looks though when they uh, ride in town with their giant arthropods uh, oh, carrying absolutely. their tent? I mean, I mean, if you want to travel overland, uh, you can't go any better than bugs. These guys <laughs> uh, can almost scale vertical uh, cliff sides. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, speaking of uh, packing stuff, uh, in your games, did you? Take uh, you know encumbrance in general is always a bit of a icky uh, topic you know with uh, uh, yes. with uh, uh, gamers. So do do you pay much attention to that, or do you just let your players carry whatever and 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 it's not a, a big factor? I don't really remember what I did. I know at one stage I nicked the resource rules out of the year zero engine Ooh, by yes, freely nice i love this because engine. that means you don't have to it's not a keep track of how many things you have but it's just a you roll a resource dice and if your resource dice size goes up and down depending on how many of the resource you have i used that for a while for the basic things like torches and so on yeah. cool yeah. and i think i then assigned each resource dice a um an encumbrance and i kind of I did something like that with backpacks or nonsense like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, hey, here's kind of the rough things you can carry around. And I think yeah. they, and then you can hold X amount in another mount or something like that. Because especially when you look at the basic encumbrance of like uh, some warrior in armor and weapon, there's yeah. not much room for anything else. So yeah. You need a mount to carry your stuff unless you want to get the penalties. Or you receive some training. I mean, if you think of uh, the legendaries of Marius, mm-hmm. who uh, uh, travel in full armor, yeah, who, tra- who carry uh, part of the field fortifications and their food. Yeah. So um, these guys pr- uh, obviously got trained in carrying lots of stuff more than uh, the uh, physical standard allotment would be. I think that would be represented by just like a higher constitution or strength, but... I think it's a skill. I mean, even even if you don't add any skill for that, you could still have the characters have, you know, their penalties to dodge and their penalty to movement and whatever. And then it's just that if there's an encounter, they have to throw their, you know, the, throw their tent and uh, mattress <laughs> and whatever to the ground, and, and then they start fighting. Or, yes. or... in my old RQ three ish game, that was our assumption. Our assumption was that you've got everything that's not your combat, your adventurer stuff, kind of in a backpack, and whenever things happen, you toss off the backpack and go, okay, and now I'm going to stab you. <laughs> yeah. But if you if you fled, you didn't have your backpack with you, so you lost anything you were carrying that wasn't like immediate well, personal possessions. Right. If um, you fled, if you fled people with uh, missiles, you probably would want to carry your backpack. It works like a shield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'll have to remember uh, that next time I'm playing with those folks. <laughs> and, uh, and then I assume, like, if if you were 
traveling with somebody to escort or traveling with some cargo to deliver, like, you know, transporting yeah. some important thing to with chieftain or gifts, then um, probably you have to at least uh, hand wave a bit of the, um, the extra pack animals with the extra cargo that you have to look for. Well, I mean, I think that the easiest thing as an adventurer is probably just to hire a porter for a few days as you go into wherever the problem is. Yeah, yeah that's one thing. Because uh, hiring, if you don't have the money to pick up a mount, because those can be pretty expensive mm-hmm. and require mm-hmm. significant down payment, you know, I bet two Lunars is enough to have some person who doesn't see silver ever follow you around for a week <laughs> as you yeah. go and handle whatever you have to handle. Well, and obviously, they're not a combatant. If, if, if trouble happens, they're they're liking it. Yeah. Well, that's the <laughs> yeah. thing. So that though, gives you someone. The the mule might be a bit more expensive, but the mule might not yeah, run away cute. too far when there's a like drop yeah. the thing and and run away when there's trouble. Yeah. So yeah. it just depends on what they have around. Another option would be heading up your uh, cult to see if there's any lay members or initiates mm. who would be able to help you out as part of their cult service. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. And then they also have a little bit more loyalty towards you. Obviously yeah. this really comes into play only when the players hit the rune master tier, because then you can oblige people to follow you yeah. around. You're expected to have this retinue and that might even also include warriors and other things. Yeah. So yeah. a party of, of rune master adventurers wandering Sartar is probably in my opinion, 10 to 15 people yeah because that's your servants that uh yes. set up your camp yeah. that's your attendant mm-hmm. warriors who defend you and so on and so forth yeah there's a yeah there seems to be a big thing in the ancient world about all your uh all your slaves and servants always traveling with you right um but and when you're playing a murder hobo you don't tend to think about that yeah no we need to address one thing we have left out uh, until now which is weird transport Weird transport? Weird. So, uh, oh, yes. Uh, vag- wagons and carts. Yes, yes. Do you stick some chariot and carts behind your horses or in front? I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, you, you usually wouldn't use horses as draft animals because uh, that kind of uh, gear isn't really well uh, contemporary to any period we associate mm. with draft. Well, it would be behind oxen or something at least. Yeah. I think the ox cart is pretty firmly attested yeah. in the um, in the artwork of uh, the current edition of RuneQuest. So mm, how, frequent, uh, how now, frequent is it? I don't know how far that's traveling necessarily, but it seems that the ox cart is a pretty standard use. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would bet it probably gets a good bit of use by stick pickers. They probably don't own the ox cart, but mm-hmm. stuff like... Um, burnable material for fires or for charcoal making is uh, very high volume and moderate weight, making it good for use with draft animals pulling it around while someone goes into the brush and pick, collects all of it. I think it, it's, it is also probably very common just with your regular uh, clan uh, farmers and, and, and mm-hmm. traders. Like basically it's the basic yes. uh, delivery van. Yeah. Well, uh, there's also the per, uh, personal uh, drawn card. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, um, you know, one person with a two wheeled pole thing. Yeah. Or you have a goat. Uh, well, probably not a goat or a dog, but. What would you use that for? Well, uh, if you look at Georg Agricola um, with his uh, mine transport, you see lots of goats or dogs or 
donkeys uh, pulling smaller carts uh, mm-hmm. below the ground. And uh, we know that this happened above ground. Mm-hmm. So people we get uh, the dog as a pack animal in the uh, ancient Great Plains, oh. um, pre-European. <laughs> the dog was a pack animal which pulled uh, basically sledges. It was, uh, it was a diverse beast of burden, basically. It yeah. both defended families, helped hunt, and w- pulled sledges to help uh, nomadic pl- Great Plains Indians travel ac- across the landscape. But we know Glorenta yeah. is more a, a cat people thing, so do you have alinxes pulling small cards? No, no, no. You, <laughs> I don't, you don't have alinxes pulling cards. No. You could have Praxians, though. Praxians yeah. like the dog. The Praxians have dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. yeah, but Praxians um, don't really have wheels. And they, well, you don't need, this isn't a wheeled thing. This is a, a sledge. Now, Praxians also have herds of animals that they don't really need that with. But you could yeah. have Telmori having wolves pulling stuff if the Telmori Ooh, need nice. to no. No, no, move no. around their campsites. That could be no, fun. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, it, it only kind of works. <laughs> uh, that's dangerously close to domestication. And that's nothing uh, that Sumption will do. <laughs> what if the wolf volunteers, though? Well, in that case, the wolf has to pull it uh, by put it, uh, putting it into his mouth. That works for me. What if it's not the wolf, but it's your cousin in wolf form? <laughs> What's his punishment? Well, that only lasts an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, mechanics, RuneQuest mechanics. So expensive to transform. No, 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 no. Uh, once you... Uh have undergone uh, your change and you give birth in that state or just uh, procreate in that state, you might have your co- actual cousin in beast form. Mm, yeah. I mean, on the wild day, I guess they all transform. And, and uh, remember yeah. that the whiter can cast that transformation spell for at a discount uh, on the group of yeah. people. So Yeah, basically as, as a cheaper version of a one-use spell. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, cool. Uh, let's move on to what happens on the road. So you've got, uh, obviously the, um, the stereotypical bandit and, uh, highwayman uh, trying to steal your cargo, uh, steal yeah. your, um, your shiny, um, iron. Ar- well, no, if they see iron armor, they're like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not getting that. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hijack the, the next guys. But, um, uh, so what I haven't had, yeah. I haven't had a bandit encounter a real long time because in the last campaign I ran, we had someone who had full bronze plate and a shiny <laughs> iron sword and, uh, very obvious death God tattoos. And I was just kind of like, you know, the typical bandits not going to mess with these guys. It's just not sure. worth your time. You, you were talking, I don't care what the random encounter table says uh, you were talking about um uh having like a small retinue of servants and um and maybe even slaves right it could happen that one of those thinks that he's gonna get away with it and while you sleep steals half your stuff and runs away in the night that really depends in my opinion on the cult relationships yeah if uh, you're say you're a windlord running with your retinue mm-hmm. and you have, you know, a slave, uh, I know lower land and the freedom people and whatever, but let's say you've got a slave lunar that does this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
then you have to go find them. Yeah. If uh, someone from your cult does this or a related cult, then you just yeah. ask your buddy to throw divination and say, hey, where's this guy at? <laughs> yeah, I'll just throw the spirit of reprisal after then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, great, yeah. spirit of reprisal time, and then we go follow. But yeah, it. no, usually it would, it would happen with um, contractors and other yeah. uh, people that you uh, hire just for a... Uh, a small time. I do think that's attested in the ancient literature that, you know, a caravan might get hit by bandits and, and would have internal conspirators. Yes. Um, Yes. And I think another big question then also to think about is how large is a bandit gang? Because we kind of think of, you know, your, your typical, honestly coming from D stereotypes bandit gang is like that five to six people that's like the small robber group yeah. because that makes a really good encounter for five to six to four to six adventures yeah. Yeah. um and that relationship still applies in glorantha because if you've got four players then four to six bandits is a pretty even fight mm-hmm. uh if they're not quite as good as the players yeah okay how, um, how big is a bandit group how many people can you feed with a yeah. single stolen sheep <laughs> yeah uh, and it's uh, then it kind of comes down yeah. to, you know, <laughs> if you're trying to handle trade caravans, which usually gathered up in numbers from multiple merchants because you're, you know, defensive numbers, mm-hmm. then the question is how many bandits have to gather together to handle this bunch of numbers trade caravans? I think I think it's going to depend on what their goal is. I could see both smaller bands of bandits kind of you know hitting the tail of the caravan and and taking off with just like one mule's worth of cargo uh, whatever it is on it and you know they might get lucky uh whereas there could be like some actually organized band of 20 30 people actually who want to steal most of your cargo yeah, bandits don't have to be outlaws. They uh, can simply be uh, be a rivaling clan who mm-hmm. demonstrates that your clan does it doesn't keep the road safe. War clans raiding outside of their tribal territories. Yeah, but w- one interesting thing with that is that at least I think it was like around ancient Greece. If you get stuff stolen from you uh, on somebody's lands, then you go see the local um, chieftain or uh, king or whatever and you get reimbursed by them because well or at least you can get a claim for that uh, because if you got attacked by bandits it means they don't keep their land safe so the interesting thing here is that first if you get raided by a clan on their own lands because you know you didn't yeah, didn't get the proper agreements with them to cross their lands, then uh, you don't have anybody to turn to. But on the other hand, a lot of the other clans who do have agreements with you to let you pass on their lands, they have a lot of interest in keeping their lands safe so that they don't have yeah. to reimburse you in case of trouble. It might be a form of a hospitality rights really to use a, a clan uh, meant road. Or in, uh, well, uh, that's, of course, why the royal roads are so fine. There you have the basically the king and his subject tribes as guarantors for your travel. Mm-hmm. Do you think the the king's roads have like some underlying agreement that you don't need to uh, you don't need to negotiate anything with any of the tribes? It's like it's agreed that if you're on those roads, then you just pay here, pay there, and and you don't. Well, the king's roads connect the tribe of the confederation cities. Mm-hmm. And I guess you simply go to the confederation or the 
representative of the confederation in the neighboring city yeah. and get a token. And that token will uh, cons uh, will show your contract with the confederation. Mm -hmm. uh, there should be some uh, something like uh, similar uh, to the stuff the Mongols used for their postal service. Mm. Hmm. I, I tend, yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think that the king's roads, provided the king is powerful and maintains <laughs> them, which is not necessarily the case from like 1602 to 1625. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think, provided that's the case, the king's roads are generally bandit free, mm -hmm. and you just have to make sure you're going into bold home and paying your tribute. Yes. Okay. I'm not personally convinced that Temertain kept the roads safe. And I don't think that was a lunar priority so long as the lunar stuff was not getting ganked, mm -hmm. which, of course, the lunar stuff was getting hit all the time because of all the rebels everywhere who were a little better than bandits. Mm -hmm. So that's also one of these elements that brings up, you know, when are you playing? If you're playing in 1615, like with RuneQuest Classic, yeah. you have lots of bandits on the roads. So, uh, the bandit tree ties in with the rebellion against the lunars and people who are claiming the rebels, but not really and mm -hmm. all that. <laughs> yeah. mm. um what else besides bandits though a great little example is uh ghosty trouble um diana probst of beer with teeth has a short scenario on the johnstown compendium which highlights this vingas ford yeah uh <clears throat> it is it's a small little encounter pretty much where uh a ford in the river uh, is a sacred site, actually, which emerges once per year from the from the waters. And the adventurers who can be just traveling through the area have to decide whether or not they're going to help defend it um, cool. from all sorts of nasty stuff going on. Nice. Yuri? So, well, uh, wild beasts, uh, obviously, if you have dinosaurs uh, or mastodons uh, rambling through the landscape, sooner or later, <laughs> they will encounter the road. <laughs> yeah. And well, uh, you, you could have uh, saber-toothed cats. Yeah. Why should they go uh, to herds when there are mule caravans? <laughs> yes. Mm. So uh, there's uh, plenty of beast uh, trouble you could have. Mm -hmm. But uh, then the other form of encounter you have probably is people resting. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. The mo mention of wild animals reminds me there's a section in Hammurabi's code related to um <laughs> Ludo's point about compensation that although if if a person does bad things the traveler gets compensation if a wild animal does bad things there's no compensation it's <laughs> not you're not you're obligated to keep the uh the roads safe from humans But what lions do is what lions do, and that's not your problem. The king is not obligated to go lion hunting. Can you do some kind of insurance fraud with the Telmori then? I don't know. There's, there's probably something I, to be done. That is an amazing scenario <laughs> idea. And I want so, someone should, I don't have the time. Someone write that, send it to me, and I will talk with you about it. <laughs> I'm not joking. Send me that. I want that. I'll help you publish it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> the problem is that everyone who lives anywhere near the Telmori assumes that a wolf attack is the Telmori. Yeah. Well, so you, they, can, you, you can, can bring some Shen Shen from anywhere else. Uh, uh, well, the, yeah. the human you just card. bring them south. Yeah. The human card has uh, wolves as associate animals. Mm. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like the idea of insurance fraud in the Bronze Age. It's those... <laughs> The, those, oh, like, really strange mashups make some of the most fun <laughs> gameplay. 
I mean, one of the most famous Bronze Age artifact is this, uh, I don't remember his name, like the guy who's complaining about the quality of the copper that the, the other yeah. merchants sent him. Yeah, Ea Nasir. Yeah, Ea Nasir, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's also this uh, family of uh, traders who re regularly got uh, into, a pr uh, into a prison or uh, something like that oh, yeah? uh, for avoiding the toll roads. <laughs> I think nice. in Assyrian times. <laughs> Speaking of strange mashups, another idea that came to mind for problems on the road. Um, what if you run out of gas? What if you don't have enough fodder to feed your animals? Mm -hmm. uh, can you pasture your animals along the roadside, which is probably a clan's lands? Mm, true. Yeah. Negotiating those conflicts when, uh, because someone didn't calculate how much food you need to bring along to feed your mules. Yeah, good point. Where's the next gas station? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or who, who was the best at who uh, uh, had all that uh, hay well, <laughs> yeah. that you really wanted or, or to get? Likewise, classic example, children, are we there yet? What trouble do children get involved in that the adventurers <laughs> then have to solve because they're bored and they're wandering along the side of the road and they're doing something else? Mm, yeah. And um, if you don't have children in your party, uh, just uh, take the Alex sidekicks. <laughs> yes well you know i was thinking like if you're escorting a merchant caravan the merchants are probably bringing their kids along if it's a whole family there's a bunch of other stuff that can happen on the road from um you know meeting people on a pilgrimage uh people who are trying to get you to make this small detour to their um little uh, town market who may or may not happen to uh be a uh, trap or not if it's happening to my adventures, it's always a trap, which is why it's never. <laughs> yeah, you have to keep them guessing is the problem. Yeah, true. Um, we didn't talk about uh, quickly uh, natural disasters, you know, like um, a river who is suddenly swollen, either for quote unquote natural causes or because the local naiad is pissed off and you have to propitiate her. Like so spirit, spirit issues slash natural uh, problems like avalanches, uh, like a broken barge to uh, pass um, uh, a river and other such obstacles um, yeah, that can always lead to a detour that puts you on some adventure. You know, if uh, if you look at um, uh, uh, Austin was talking about uh, Nick Brooks' map of adventures. You know, you can look at what's the nearest adventure. Okay, where are the <laughs> where are the adventures going? Oh yeah, let's let's put an obstacle here. They have to make yeah. this detour. Now I don't even have to modify this adventure because otherwise you would have to work, you know, to move the adventure in front of them. <laughs> Another sort of sort of a meta topic on how things go bad on the roads. Another thing to consider is how often should the game master make something go bad on the roads? Yeah. One encounter roll per hex. As God intended. Exactly. <laughs> like, like those kinds of things. Uh, how, what's the, what do you guys see as the best way for the game master to handle bad shit happening while traveling through uh, Dragon Pass? I think it has to do with what is the last time since the bad stuff. So more of a problem of uh, the rhythm and, you know, ups and downs in your current story. So, yeah. Has it been a long time since they had a fun little combat with some bandits or some uh, wandering feral trollkin or whatever? And do do they need a quick win because they just got bitten uh, mm. by the um, by some big army in the last scenario, or or are they at a high narratively and they don't need that, and so nothing happens. Yeah. The other. 
The other thing is the problem with hospitality. Mm -hmm. Because usually you will have uh, some kinfolk on the road uh, who, are, who will be eager to uh, invite you in and get the most recent news from their original home. People intermarrying, sort of. Mm -hmm. And badly. So uh, it's uh, uh, pretty hard to approach a clan and not have somebody who has uh, well, uh, some form of kinship there. Some wife will come from your clan, come from your clan. Yeah. And so you're almost Which... uh, obligated to contact that person somehow and yeah. uh, leave a message or something like that. But, uh, but yes, uh, these social obligations just to stop with a certain group to uh, contact a certain person, mm -hmm. which will mean you will be uh, introduced to their neighbors and their chief. So travel can be quite slow simply because you have to shake hands. I think something that comes up in a similar way is that hospitality is often how you handle, you know, where you're staying the night. Um, the hospitality rights of the Orlanthi, whether they're kinship ones or the more formal ones. Mm -hmm. of, yeah. You know, you're going to the chieftains asking for hospitality in a formal sense. Mm -hmm. What is interesting for me is that uh, in classical Greece, there's the tradition of guest friendship, which ties in with hospitality. It's mm -hmm. looked over by Zeus of the Foreigner, who looks after strangers. And one of the things I've been considering introducing into my Glorantha is this concept using the Orlanthi tradition of hospitality, where, you know, there's the myth about Orlanth and whomever, where Orlanth offers various levels of care and attention ranging from you can get water you can get you can sit by the fire you can get salt and the final one is duty mm -hmm. and yes. inviting them into the family and so one of the things i've been considering in this is that different families could have these you know that connection of duty to each other over long distances that's been established by an ancestor yeah. and so just like in greece how people would have this guest relationship which in a way, it didn't supersede city relationships, but existed and was important outside of it. Mm -hmm. That people from long distances and with possibly fractious relationships with one another could still interact in a peaceable way. For example, in the Peloponnesian War area, there were people who had family guest relationships between Athens and Sparta. And that was how a lot of diplomatic channels yeah. were traversed, mm -hmm. because these were the hospitality relationships that existed, even though the two states were at war with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's my understanding also that a lot of those big cities had the ancient version of uh, a, a consul, right? Uh, like yeah. a, like a console, yeah. so it was like a some semi informal a tribal manner. Yeah, well, it was apparently semi informal, as in it's this guy from this other place, but he let he would let his house be open to any guest from his original tribe, original uh, city, or whatever. Even gotcha. if even if they even if he doesn't know them. And because of that, he would get a lot of gossip and information uh, about what's still going on. And, and so he would naturally be used as the de facto, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, yeah, diplomat. The permanent diplomat. diplomat. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so it was embassy. basically... Embassy? Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like a proto-embassy um, slash yeah. in, I guess. I bet Notchett's filled with that. Yeah, you know? definitely. Notchett's so huge, it's got to have uh, 
you know, it's got to ha- I probably from the cities of Sartar, not from the tribes of Sartar, but I bet there's a equivalent of this hostile type place where, you know, if you're from the Johnstown Confederation, you can go to Nacha and you'll be given this address and you'll spend about 12 hours searching for the damn place and then you'll be stabbed by thieves and then you'll find it and they'll teach you about the city. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, a fifth of Notchet is inhabited by, inhabited by satellites. So, yeah, yeah, that's exactly like what I'm thinking. So uh, Jeff is uh, used to say that Notchet is the biggest uh, satellite city. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, also, it also might be the biggest Manerian city. <laughs> but you will, you will have uh, mostly uh, Isseries people uh, occupying these uh, roles. Uh, if if you look at Joe Myth uh, and his offspring, yeah, I mean uh, Joe Myth is going to be the uh, be in the Johnstown uh, product. I think I think he's uh, depicted as having retired from his Balazar tours and now being the city regs. Mm-hmm. So uh, he has uh, his son operating an inn in Trillis, if I remember correctly or now probably running the caravan and having his wife or children taking care of that inn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And such uh, traders may have more than one such inn. So uh, you will have trading houses with dependencies uh, sp- uh, distributed all over the cities. I mean, you have you have also like franchised inns with like geos. Okay, geos is a uh, totally uh, different topic we have to address. <laughs> I mean, yeah, are we moving on to the are we moving on to the McDonald's of Glorantha yet or not? Yeah, no, it's let's, not, let's it's not McDonald's. McDonald's. It's not yes. McDonald's of uh, Glorantha. It's more like yeah, but it's motor chain. It's a motor chain. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it it does. Um, I mean, there there is this concept of making sure that you have an in every day of travel along all of your axis of travel, right? Uh, yeah. Which is I suppose how Apple Lane came to be, like, you know, they just propped up this hamlet with a temple there for travelers because they figured, like, oh, yeah, that's one day travel. Apple Lane came to be because old Chaosium wanted a way to put adventures in a place with weird stuff. So by Apple Lane came to be, (laughs) I mean, how they just... How they justified it later that Apple Lane was there. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, okay. Uh, to me, Apple Lane's just Gringerstead. What? Gringerstead. Uh, because oh, yes. Gringer, yes. Gringer uh, was sent there to retirement. The Galeria Temple apparently pre-existed. But now we have this uh, very influential and rich uh, retired uh, adventurer who wants his services near him. So he has an yeah. ironsmith, so he has a horse master, so he has a weapon uh, master. So he's, uh, it's, a, it's a gentrified hamlet. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's basically uh, retiring with all the uh, benefits you want to attend. Yeah, billionaires, the they, they, they mess up everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, whether it's geos or something else, you do have i think they want to put a big emphasis on that in kind of the quote-unquote new salt or uh that you have a lot of uh caravan serai in uh in yeah. at regular intervals just look at the columnar tribes map uh, from the uh, gn screen pack yeah you will find lots of places called in 
yeah, some of them are geos and some of them are something else like the the broad yeah. view in which um, I yeah. think the the Jeff's players visited just recently in the Chaosium House campaign. And going back to what you were saying, Austin, about packing enough food for the 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 mounts, one one service that would be typically given at uh, most inns would be actually replacement pack animals. So you would you would just trade in your tired animals and and get new ones for a certain price. I'm not sure exactly how you would play that like in terms of gameplay to kind of encourage your players to spend the money. But. Yeah, yeah, that it's like I like that. That's an idea I hadn't considered, but every player I've ever known gets very attached to his things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I, I think that'd be really fun to play out for my group. Yeah. <laughs> because oh, hey, do you want a new horse? We'll trade it out for you. And it's like but I like my horse. <laughs> well, you might you might keep the horse, but you yeah. you might change your yeah. your your uh, pack mules. But it was also um, uh, I think it's maybe. But I named that one Billy. <laughs> yes, and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I think a bit maybe it's a bit later in the Roman times or something where uh, you have the thing where especially when you want when you want to send a very fast message that you have uh, not only like the horses only riding one day and then it's another horse that goes for the other day between the, the next two inns, uh, but also a change of messenger so that uh, it's not the same guy riding the same horse for two weeks. Um, so yeah, I don't know exactly how the inns would be, um, what kind of services they would have. I, I assume they would have all those kind of services, but yeah, then it's more of a, a problem of putting them into play for your players. Um, so, yeah, yeah, what do you want? You want people who repair your harnesses, mm -hmm. reshoe your uh, beasts if uh, beasts are short. Yeah, you can probably do something like... Do uh, we have horseshoes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, stir I know stirrups is a very contentious question. Do we have horseshoes? But, um, I... You don't know if that were if they were present anciently. I just don't remember. I think horseshoes come along when you have paved roads, and we obviously have paved roads. Yeah, so that's uh, a good point. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Sartar also gave the high the horse people of Sartar a little nudge and said, "Hey, stick some metal under that. <laughs> it keeps the redsmith spitty, and it's a it makes a nice noise." Um, oh yes, but yeah, it's probably possible to you know give. A cumulative minus five percent to your riding skill, maybe, or just chop off a, a little bit of of uh, travel time every time, uh, unless <laughs> unless you unless you actually pay the money to change your uh, your mounts. I don't know, something like that, maybe. And these, these mules are all used up. You need to retire them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're out of gas. Yeah, no, uh, you you need to retire with them with uh, Y and retire. <laughs> So besides the animals, there's also the riders, like the, the player characters might get tired. Uh, I also don't know how to introduce that in play, but I definitely want to introduce it in play ever since I um, read about, um, so the fact that when you stop at your inn or, or whatever, you know, you go to the public bath to have a good bath, um, uh, change of clothes and all that. But apparently... Public baths in ancient Greece were notorious for thieves. And I so want a naked player character running after a thief in the middle of Jonestown <laughs> or something like that. So I just. You know, I wasn't. 
I wasn't sure how common baths were, but now I agree. I'm in on that. <laughs> Anytime you can strip the players of their gear and force them to handle it is a good situation. Yes. Yeah. But then public nudity is not an issue in uh, Olanzi society. So. Oh, it's not. No, no, it's, no. It's I just, just want to get them out of run naked and yeah. try to get them out of their armor. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have your armor. You have to play different. Yes. <laughs> as long as it's not happening. As long as it's not happening all the time, it forces the uh, player to think of new tactical options. Uh, I think one one thing you can play at least with where the players stop in their travel is to play with the amount of services that you have around the thing. So, you know, is it just a small courtyard with small rooms with no window and that's it and there's nothing else? Or is it actually something where um, you have uh, food and drink, you have a veterinarian to uh, take care of your animals? Uh, you have maybe a public bath just next door, uh, maybe even, you know, the uh, waiters and waitresses in the inn um, also double as companions or whatever. Uh, so there's there, there can be more or less services around the inn and more or less NPCs that may have more or less adventure seeds based on how, um, you know, maybe that's the difference between, you know, Israelia and big cities versus some in lost in the middle of nowhere yeah and then there's the private uh host uh, which provides similar services or not the private what the private host uh, so you oh, uh, you yes. have you have that uh you have that sis uh, sister you married off to that clan so you mm -hmm. uh, visit yeah. her household yes or maybe, uh, and uh, meet her neighbors and maybe they have pretty daughters so, <laughs> and one of the... they, they they maybe have something in mind to marry one of their daughters with uh if they are impressed with the with the guests or simply have have the child and not bother about the marriage <laughs> yeah Le legitimacy it doesn't play uh, much and mm -hmm. uh, marriage is about uh, where does the uh, offspring go Yeah. So uh, it's uh, men marry because they want the woman to deliver in their clan, or because their grandmother tells them to. Yeah, uh, basically, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. the grandma. Uh, the grandma <laughs> makes them uh, to uh, do that yeah. because the grandmother wants yeah. the grandchildren uh, to buzz around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the good thing with the private <laughs> hosts also is that unlike an actual inn, there is no business contracts or even maybe not even a fixed social contract it's like you're going to this person's house because you maybe know him from some remote cousin yeah. or whatever and so anything could go he could be asking you for something he could be trying to um uh scam you or he could be trying yeah, to sell you a, a daughter or whatever um yeah. so there is a lot of possible opportunities for taking the story in a new direction yeah um, and of course send somebody along with you so uh, the gm can introduce new new characters or new sidekicks yeah yeah and new problems yeah especially since uh i think in an ancient world like that there is a lot of kind of ad hoc uh, messages and gifts being sent along yeah. with whatever yes. traveler you can because uh it's like oh you're going through um johnstown or whatever oh i have this thing that you need to deliver to so and so or this message yeah. so uh, yeah. my, my son needs to uh, needs to learn this new spell can you take him along <laughs> yes yeah. yeah i think that the private host is especially common if you're traveling for diplomatic reasons 
one of the few travelogues I've run in one of my campaigns was the adventurers were being sent as heralds of Argrath from Pavis shortly after Calier's death in the Battle of Queens going to the Colomar because I had an adventure. I wanted to run the Colomar, but the real <laughs> but the in-game reason yeah. was that they needed to get secure the Colomar support because that's ostensibly Argrath's home. Yes. That's that's the clan he or the tribe he claims membership in. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely convinced, but whatever. That's not important. He spent for the story. like six years there as a kid. That's it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where I mean, my personal belief is that Argrath's actually a trickster, pulling the wool over everyone's <laughs> eyes. But you yes. know, that's not really important. Yeah, no, well, uh, he was and initiated so, there, wasn't he? So that uh, has to count for something. If if, if you trust uh, uh, obviously early sources like Prince of Star Tar comic book, yes, but exactly. it's a comic book. Are you going to trust comic books, really? <laughs> and so the places that the adventurers stayed once they got into Sartar were clan chieftain households and uh i don't think they stayed in any tribal king households but you know they're they're staying with the important people of the area not at the ends yes and they're bringing gifts and they're bringing gifts uh Mm -hmm. which i forced the i i needed a way to for the adventurers to spend some money so they had to bring gifts as the we are the representatives of argrath and it's our job to make argrath look good because he's our king and so how how do you uh make sure that your players are going to spend the money on gifts like do you give like penalties to uh social roles and stuff like that or i told them that there's an expectation of gift giving as part of hospitality processes and then i let them decide what they wanted to do the person who was the herald uh decided eh, 50 silver sounds about right (laughs) and so i and so we were like well that's the same cost as a broadsword and a broadsword does count as a noble and princely gift so they're giving out broadswords to all these leaders (laughs) as a way of saying look here uh or uh, we are following the king of Orlanth. Here's an Orlanth's weapon for you. Mm, so. And the gift they received in turn was food and stay and all that hospitality stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And so they weren't staying at inns. They were staying with the important yes. people as they traveled through the land, spreading the word of our graph yeah. and trying to make his claim more plausible <laughs> when he comes down with his army from Altachur in the spring and says, look, I'm in charge now. I don't care what you say because <laughs> I've got 10,000 screaming Praxians behind me. Yes. Okay. And I can see the, uh, the shady trader traveling after them, buying up all these swords and selling them to the adventurers <laughs> for the next trip. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs> You know, we're just working with uh, you've got X number in your goods line in the on your character sheet. We didn't really want to define what it was. And yeah. so when he's saying at 50 silver, it's like, OK, it's either a silver torque or it's a bronze sword or I don't yeah. really care what it is. Mm-hmm. You don't really care what it is. Yeah. We're able to ad hoc. It's this amount of value. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's a pretty nice gift. That's yeah. like a real people that's, gift. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Uh, well, I think we are uh, now over time, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I hope people heard some interesting ideas and uh, interesting information for their games. So, do you have any last words on travel in Sardar? 
if someone wants to send me that insurance scam adventure, <laughs> I'm not joking. I would love to publish that and work with someone on that. Send it my way. We, I don't have that uh, kind of time. We, we, we can do something. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Ludo, you don't have that kind of time either. I'm your editor and you have too much already on true, your plate. Yes, no. Yes. True. Um, <laughs> one day I'll publish something. Um, I'm allowed to say no. <laughs> yes. Okay, then. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been wonderful to chat with you guys. Well, yeah. thanks for coming. Um, it's been a lot of fun. If, if <laughs> enough people listen, uh, maybe we'll uh, get you on air uh, once again later. Ah, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Another obligation, yes. The yes. reward for a good deed. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. <laughs>